It's Thursday, February 27th. I'm Nicole Ellis. Here are election updates from today's episode of Post Reports. I am a millennial and have been fascinated by the diversity of the millennial experience for probably 10 years. According to Pew Research, millennials range from people born in 1981 to 1996. And those are incredibly broad experiences, depending on where you're from and your various identities and how you view the world. I'm Eugene Scott. I'm a political reporter for The Fix. The Harvard Institute of Politics for years has polled, hosted focus groups, done other type of research projects focused on young voters. And I've been following them for years. Come on, do me a favor. If you could just like start in the middle, because we have a few too many chairs and we'll kind of fan out. So I saw that they would be in South Carolina ahead of the primary talking to a diverse group of young voters. And so I went down there to sit in on the focus group. You guys are the most patient people I've ever met. Thank you. What was it like when you were on the ground meeting with young voters in South Carolina? It was a great experience because I wasn't just talking to college students. There were other millennials in this focus group brought together by the Harvard Public Opinion Project. There were single parents. There were married people. There were college students, of course. There was representation from a group I'm very interested in, which is millennials who did not pursue education beyond high school. Because I think a lot of times in the mainstream media, we use millennial and college student interchangeably as if every young person goes to college. And we know that's not true. It also sounds like this group of millennials was also extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, across this fairly broad landscape of millennial experiences, what were some of the key issues that they wanted to see addressed in the election cycle? It was diverse. I mean, people of color and people of color who also were not black, white people, men, women. There were quite a few issues they were very concerned about. It's Charleston, South Carolina, one of the most historical places uh, in our country related to the slave trade. And there was conversation about the lasting legacy of racial tension that continues to exist in this country and the role that President Trump has played in stoking it. The one I would say would probably be like the racial tension with uh, a president, the way he kind of <coughs> talks about like immigration and Mexico and that kind of thing, the border. There was a lot of interest in housing affordability and low wages and a desire to see an increase in incomes, student loan debt crises. A lot of the issues that you would see in any major city in the country, Charleston, which is one of the more cosmopolitan cities in the South, is experiencing its own microcosm of all of those issues. If you're from Charleston, you cannot afford to live here. It was fascinating to hear it from those young people's perspectives. Was there anything that stood out to you right off the bat in terms of the things that came up in your conversations? One of the things that I was most taken aback by was the fact that when the facilitator asked... Who feels like you're struggling? Struggling to, like, you know, keep your head above water. Keep your hands up for a second, all right? Everybody raised their hands. Because quite a few members of the group were college-educated professionals. And so I 
I was surprised to see and to hear that everyone would think that they were struggling. And it was just a reminder of an issue that many on the left bring up time and time again, that despite having a full-time job in this country, there are many people who are, by most definitions, gainfully employed and still struggling financially. So much of the conversation about economic anxiety during the 2016 election focused on white working class voters. There wasn't a lot of conversation about how people of color and even middle class Americans, regardless of their race, are anxious about where the economy is. And it was really helpful to be on the ground hearing some of these voters explain why. How does this sort of shape up in comparison with what you saw from young people in Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada? I think we are seeing in all of these states, all of the young people say they want something new. So most young people in these states backed Bernie Sanders. But even those who are more moderate lean towards Pete Buttigieg. And I think what that communicated was they want either a new ideology to be dominant on the left and perhaps government as a whole. Or if they are a little more comfortable with the status quo, they want a new approach to it with some new ideas from someone outside of Washington. And so what young voters are communicating, I believe, across the board is what has happened or has been happening is not what they want to keep happening. As a fellow seasoned millennial. <laughs> not a season, it's me, though. <laughs> not quite a yes. seasoned. You're, yes, you're more seasoned than yes. me. I want to know how powerful this voting block is and whether or not millennials are exercising that right to vote. That's a great question. Well, there's a lot of interest, I think, in millennials in this election for a few reasons. One, it's the first time a millennial has been a leading candidate. Pete Buttigieg is a millennial. There's been a lot of interest in what an America led by a millennial could look like. And that's because despite millennials not having deep history of high voter turnout, that changed in 2016. The 2016 election is where millennials really showed their voting power. About 46 percent of eligible millennial voters showed up. And those numbers increase for the 2018 midterms as well. And so there's just some expectation that they will even go up in the 2020 election, in part because millennials have surpassed baby boomers as the largest voting bloc. Now, nobody really votes like baby boomers. They're like 70-something percent. And even though the percentage of millennials voting in 2016 increased from 2012 and was actually the only age group to actually increase, no one thinks they're going to jump, you know, 30 points and beat baby boomers. But it could be closer to 50 percent than ever before, in part because the presumptive front runner right now, and it may feel a bit premature to say that, but based on the states and contests we've seen right now, the presumptive nominee, Bernie Sanders, is winning and leading with young voters. And so, I think millennials are showing their power. Earlier, you mentioned that millennials have yet to reach the 50 percent threshold in terms of voter turnout. If Bernie Sanders doesn't win the nomination, will millennials rally behind whoever the nominee is? That is the big question right now. Will Sanders supporters, including young voters, get behind a nominee 
whose ideology and vision for America is not as progressive as theirs. We know that Sanders has been very vocal saying that if he does not win the nomination, he wants his supporters to support the nominee the same way he will. And we saw in 2016 he did the same thing. And most Sanders voters in 2016 did support Hillary Clinton, but not all. And it is believed that some who did not may have influenced the outcome of the election, certainly not single-handedly, but in part. And so I think right now what will need to happen for a nominee other than Sanders to get the support of Sanders' young voters is to at least move a bit left on their economic issues while maintaining their moderate worldview to keep the people who brought them there. But for young voters to, I believe, turn out in mass in the ways that will be needed to win the election, there's going to have to be a candidate that is hearing their concerns and addressing them directly with policy issues. What would be your main takeaway from talking to young voters across the country in however many states you visited so far? It's just fascinating to be on the ground and hear the perspectives of people who all who don't always get the opportunity to go on air and share their stories. We're in the storytelling business and it's it's I it will never get old to me connecting with real Americans and hearing you know, one young man talk about his anxieties about his brother going to war. My brother is a pilot in the Navy, and when the U.S. killed Suleimani, uh, over a thousand troops within his own base were immediately deployed. Yeah. So, me with talking with my parents, we do worry, like, he might be next to right. go up. And a young mom talking about having to choose between her daughter eating and her eating. Another young woman expressing her anxiety about reproductive health and access to abortion. Um, My mom worked for Planned Parenthood in San Francisco for six years, lobbied on the Hill for them. Mm -hmm. I've always been a very strong advocate for Planned Parenthood and reproductive justice. And the fact that in the past year, so many states have either past bills that are banning Mm -hmm. um, abortions at certain weeks or Mm -hmm. just completely or that they're being brought to the floor including in South Carolina um, I cannot express my disgust and just disappointment in the politics that's surrounding that culture being on the ground talking to young people is the best way to see how policy impacts the individuals affected by it. And when you're talking to real people out in the field, it's no longer just theory. It's it's real. It's the real world. Eugene Scott covers identity politics for the Post blog, The Fix. And now, one more thing. Presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg, who's been getting a lot of attention with his advertising, is going to be on the ballot for the first time this coming Tuesday for many of the Super Tuesday races across the country in many states that have a very diverse Democratic electorate. And that has put a lot of attention on the stop and frisk program that was very controversial when he was mayor of New York. We want our police to both 
protect us, protect our civil rights, but also keep crime down and uh, find out where the bad guys are. We have the lowest crime rate we've ever had in the history of the city, and that's particularly important to black and Latino kids and their families and their neighborhoods because that's where the crime is. Stops are made based on descriptions of suspects and suspicious activity only. And the sad reality is, on the streets of our city, 90% of murder suspects and murder victims are black and Latino. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much and minorities too little. I'm Dan Keating, a data reporter in graphics. The Stop and Frisk program, which was also called Stop, Question, and Frisk in New York City, enables police to target people who haven't necessarily committed a crime, but that they want to just check out, especially in high-crime areas. So the good thing about that is that police are hoping to try to actually prevent crimes. The bad thing about that is that it empowers police to stop people who maybe have done nothing wrong. And a lot of people felt that they were really being very unfairly targeted, just walking down the street, and police would stop them, put them up against the wall, and frisk them. Mayor Giuliani expanded the program considerably in the 1990s to try to address New York's high crime rate. And, in fact, crime did come down a lot due to a number of factors, including a reduction of crack, higher incomes, a stronger economy. There was a lot of things that contributed to crime coming down. And one thing that got some credit was stop and frisk. Then Michael Bloomberg came along in 2002, and he expanded it enormously from up to about 100,000 stops a year. And Bloomberg's police turned it up to over 680,000 stops in a year. So it was a six-fold increase. And the crime rate basically continued to do the exact same trend it had done under Giuliani. It was going down at about the same rate. So that huge increase in stops, which caused an enormous amount of angst, especially in the African-American and Hispanic communities where over 85% of the stops are, people felt really unfairly targeted and didn't feel like it was actually making much of a difference with regard to the, the crime rate. Stop and frisk was controversial, but the defense for it was that it drove crime rates down. And there is just no question that stop, question, frisk has saved countless lives. And we know that most of those lives saved, based on the statistics, have been black and Hispanic young men. What we found was that in fact, some of the rates of major felonies actually went up while the stop and frisks were at their maximum. That included larcenies and assaults and rapes. And then after a federal judge in 2013 ruled that stopping a lot of people for whom there was no basis to think they had been involved in crime was unconstitutional for the African-American and Hispanics that were being stopped. The number was cut in half in a year. Then even when they disappeared, almost all the stop and frisks went away. The crime rate continued to go down. And some crimes actually went down faster afterwards, burglaries and, and robberies in particular. Bloomberg's defense, and it's most famously now represented by an audio of an Aspen Institute event where he spoke. And he said 95% of murders, murderers and murder victims fit one M.O., you can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it You can out just take a description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities, 16 to 25. 
to take just the relatively small number of murder perpetrators and reflect that to all African-American and Hispanic men is just completely unfair. The vast, vast, vast majority of African and Hispanic men are not involved in murder. And so to just apply it to them uh, is what the judge said was unconstitutional. In November, right before he announced his campaign for president, he apologized, said he had come to realize that a lot of harm was done and that he's sorry that it happened. I apologized when enough people said to me, you were wrong, and I thought about it, and I wish I'd done it earlier. And essentially saying that he has learned over time and and he's become more enlightened. And he has repeated that consistently right up to last night. He was at a public event where he said that again. Uh, I can't rewrite history. I look back, and if I had something, if I could do it elsewhere uh, again, uh, I would do it differently. It is certainly true that people can learn over time and can come to understand things they didn't previously understand. On the other hand, some people are saying that he seems to have had this enlightenment right when he was about to run for president and needed a lot of African-American and Hispanic votes. Dan Keating is a data reporter for The Post. You can find The Post's analysis of stop and frisk at postreports.com. That's it for this segment of Post Reports. Full episodes of our show come out every weekday afternoon. You can subscribe at postreports.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nicole Ellis. Thanks for listening. Listening.